Good morning. As we, uh, as we just sang of that great love of God, the love of the Father that's poured out on the Son. And, you know, in John's Gospel, as Jesus prays for believers as he prays for us, not just for those first disciples. Uh, he concludes by saying, Righteous Father, the world does not know you. I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Now this is the prayer of Christ for us uh, and with that in mind, let us pray as we come to meditate on God's word. Father, we thank you that you have heard that you have answered your son, Jesus Christ, and we pray then in accordance with his prayer, Lord, that the love that you have for him, the eternal love of the Father to the eternal Son, Lord, it may be in us, that he may be in us, that we may comprehend something of the greatness of the vastness of your love, Lord, but more than comprehend that we may bask in it, that we, or that we may live from it. So then, would you rather, would you rather run a 100 meter sprint or run a marathon? 100 meter sprint or a marathon? Is, is Diana back yet? Dan? She was, was, it, was it yesterday she was doing a marathon? Okay, yeah, well, well, we'll check with her. Would she have rather have just done 100 meters or done it? I certainly would rather do a 100 meter sprint. For a start, it's a lot more glamorous on the Olympics. But a 100-meter sprint, it seems a lot more feasible, a lot easier, that short, intense burst, rather than that long, sustained effort. I've not done a lot of long-distance running, uh, probably none. I think the furthest I've managed is 7K. And I wouldn't say that was terribly enjoyable. There's a sense, certainly when I'm running, I don't know if I've got it within me to keep going. I don't know if I have the reserves to keep this up. I've either got to massively slow down or I need to stop. And have you ever had that similar experience when it comes to loving others? Now, if loving was a race, it would be a lot easier, wouldn't it, if, if loving was a 100-meter sprint? It may be intense, but it's short, it's done. But if love is a marathon, if love needs to keep on going, I don't know if I have the strength within me to keep this up. Now, there's, a, there's a test me that Rick shared probably about a year or two uh, ago. It still sticks with me. Some of the finer details, maybe not, so Rich can correct me if I get it wrong. But uh, it was, a, was it gap year at an orphanage? Sort of gap year. You weren't doing anything else, but you were working at an orphanage. Where was it? Thailand. Uh, and Rich spoke about how this love that he had for the children that he was caring for, this love that God had put in his heart, was such that he found himself saying to God, I would give my life for these children. I would die for them. And God challenged him with this question, but would you live for them? You know, 
giving our lives for another, laying down our lives, it's the greatest expression of love, we're told. And yet to physically die for someone is a one-off thing. It's intense, but you can only do that once. But to live for someone, to continually lay down your life for them, I don't know if I have that within me to keep going. I don't know if I have those reserves. Can you resonate with that? And yet this is what we are commanded to do. And we've seen this command throughout Wong John. That we are to love one another. We are to keep on loving one another. How do we do this? Uh, we saw this last week. Do you have your Bibles open to uh, 1 John chapter 4. We saw last week verse 7. Now love comes from God. The love does not originate within us. Love comes from God. Last week we considered the, the intensity of God's love. And this week as we continue through chapter 4 into chapter 5 we're going to consider something of the immensity of God's love. Now, if last week was about the fire of God's love, then this week is about the eternal fountain of his love. How are we to go on loving one another, to keep on loving? Love comes from God. As we work through uh, this passage, and we're going to see what that means for love to come from God to Sort of things, to, to foundations, uh, to, to help us guide our way through this. And that is a divine source of love and a divine sort of love. So a divine source of love. Have a look with me. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. This is how we know. I'm just going to stop here briefly with this. This is how we know. This phrase, this is how, occurs several times in this passage. One of the things translators have to grapple with when you come across that term, this is how, is the question of, is this pointing backwards to what has been said, or is it pointing forwards to what is about to be said? Is it, there's a statement, and because of that statement, this is how we know, or is it, this is how we know, statement is followed. And in the NIV translation, consistently in this passage, they use it to refer to what follows. So this is how is referring to what follows. However, when we get to verse 17, now I'm convinced by the NET translation, some views of commentators, that it's not looking forwards in verse 17, it's looking backwards to what has been said. Now if all of that has confused you and you have no idea what I'm going on about, don't worry, that's just me to explain kind of how we're reading this passage and maybe why some of the English grammar in the NIV with the colons might be slightly different when we get to it. So if you have any questions about that, you can ask me later. Otherwise, just park that to one side. But verse 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. So in verse 12, uh, last week, we were looking at how love is made complete. Uh, and love is made complete as God lives in us. So we come here to verse 13. How do we know? How do we know that he lives in us? Well, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. 
I think the emphasis here is on the his. He has given us of his spirit. We've already seen as we've gone through this letter in chapter 4, you know, there, there are various types of spirit that are referred to. Now, don't believe every spirit we're told in 4.1. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. How do we know a spirit is from God? Verse 2, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And then just drop your eyes down to verse 6. It speaks about the eyewitness testimonies. And we're from God, whoever knows and listens to us. And it says this is how we recognize the spirit of truth. So this confession that Jesus Christ has indeed come in the flesh, this agreement with the eyewitness apostolic testimony. Now just look at verses 14 and 15. And we have seen and testify, apostolic eyewitness testimony, the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Do you see, it's the same thing that is being repeated here. This is how the Spirit of God is recognized, we're told. And yet, the Spirit of God is not referring to just something that God has has given, something that is approved by God. Verse 13, he has given us of his Spirit. This is God's Spirit. Now this Wednesday, uh, the Wednesday just gone in our morning prayer meeting on Zoom, we were looking briefly at Exodus 33. And Exodus 33, it follows uh, the sin of the golden calf. So God has rescued his people out of slavery from Egypt. And in the middle of this covenant-making ceremony, as these people are becoming the people of God, they engage in idolatry. And Moses has to go, he says, I'm going to make intercession. You've done a a grievous wickedness. I'm going to seek to make atonement. And God speaks to Moses and says, I cannot dwell with these people. They are wicked. If I dwell with them, I'm going to consume them. But I will be faithful to keep my promise. Now, I'll bring them into the promised land. But I'm going to send my angel ahead of you. I cannot go with you. And at this point, Moses cries out to God and he says, but if if your presence does not go with us, do not send us. Do not send us up from this place. Do not move us if your presence is not going with us. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? And what will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? What is it that distinguishes the people of God? It is the presence of God. The presence of God with a people of God. Verse 12 here in 1 John, how is love made complete? It is made complete by him living in us, us in him, the presence of God with his people. How do we know this? He has given us of his spirit. See, this prayer, this longing of Moses finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And this is what Jesus promised. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to send you another, another advocate, another helper who will be with you always. This is what God did on the day of Pentecost. He poured out his spirit on his church. How do we keep on loving And we don't keep on loving from our own reserves. 
See, the well of our hearts, it often runs dry. But that's not the place where we draw water from. God has promised streams of living water, and these streams of living water are indeed to well up inside of us, but they come from the throne of God, from God himself. And so as we ask this question, how are we to go on loving one another? It's not by looking to ourselves, not looking to our own resources as we considered last week, but as this is expanded, it is because God has given us of his spirit. And so verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. And we saw last week that the love of God is seen as a father sends the son. That Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who comes as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That on the cross, Jesus bears our sins. He bears the just judgment against our sins so that we might be forgiven. And yet, that's not where the story ends. Forgiveness is not the end of the story. Now, what I'm about to say may sound like heresy. We're all listening now, aren't we? Our greatest need is not the forgiveness of sins. Our greatest need is not the forgiveness of sins. Now, the forgiveness of sins is a deep need. It is a crucial step, but our greatest need is the presence of God. And the forgiveness of sins is for the purpose that we might have fellowship with God. Our greatest need is for the presence of God because it is in him that there is life. God is love. We cannot love like him aside from him. The gospel does not end on the cross. Our greatest need is for the presence of God. As Moses said, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us from here. If this is how it ends, if it ends without your presence, then there's no point. What will distinguish us from all other peoples? Look again, verse 16, as it continues. God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. The only way that we can live in love is because of the presence of God. Because God is love. And so verse 17, this is how love is made complete. Now as mentioned earlier, I think there are good grammatical and theological reasons to understand here in verse 17 this is how, is referring to everything that we've just read. This is how love is complete in us. The love of God. Jesus comes, who offers himself willingly as a sacrifice for sins, in order that we might be forgiven, so that God's presence might be with us, God's presence might be with his people, so that we would love, not from our broken systems, not from the resources of our heart, but from the overflow of his. And this is how love is made complete. And we saw last week, for for love to be complete, 
It means that love has fulfilled its purpose. The goal of love has been fulfilled. And we saw that that purpose, that goal of love, that the reason that the Father sends the Son, the reason that Jesus comes, is in order that we might be brought into God's family. That we might share in the family resemblance was the metaphor we used last week. Now that we might love as Jesus loves, that we might be like Jesus. That is the goal, that is the purpose of love. And so verse 17, paraphrased, love is made complete. God works now to make us like Jesus, to love as he loved. And this is why we will have confidence on the day of judgment. The day of judgment is spoken about in various places in scripture. It was something that Jesus taught. It was something that the prophets and the apostles taught. And consistently, you know, the day of judgment is a good thing. The day of judgment is presented as a good thing. God is good. God is just. And so the day of his judgment cannot be anything less than good. However, Scripture does present this good event as either an occasion for celebration or an occasion for fear. It's a good day, but it's either an occasion for celebration or an occasion for fear. And we've already seen in Wong John, humanity is divided into these two groups. You have the children of God and you have the children of the devil. The day of judgment is a good day. It is a glorious day. Now, whether that day is met with celebration and confidence or whether it is met with fear depends on which group you belong to. Now, to those who are made perfect or complete in love, and it's the same word that is used. So in NIV, they, they switch between complete and perfect. It's referring to the same thing here. To those who are made perfect or complete in love. In other words, those who share in the family resemblance of God. Now, those who are made to be like Jesus, then it is a day of celebration. It is a day that is to be met with confidence. But to those who are not made perfect, to those who are not made complete in love, those who share in the family likeness of the evil one, those who are like Cain, chapter 3, it is a day of fear. Have a look at verse 18. There is no fear in love. But perfect love, complete love, drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is the one who is not made perfect, the one who is not made complete in love. I don't think this verse is speaking about our emotional feelings in the present. No, there are some people who are fearful and they shouldn't be, and there are many people who are not fearful and they should be. The question is not really whether you fear fearful. Now, that might be a helpful indicator, but we know at times our feelings can be wrong, especially if our understanding 
of a situation is wrong. The real question is not whether you fear fearful. The real question is, do you have a reason to fear? Do you have a reason to fear? And yet God's love is given so that that day may be an occasion for celebration, an occasion for confidence, so that we need not fear. That we can have confidence because God's love is made complete in us, that we're brought into the family to share in the family resemblance, that we might love like Christ even to the very end. And all this is from God. Look at verse 19. We love that work of love being made complete in us. We love, why, how? Because he first loved us. The river of God's love is to flow through us, but it doesn't originate within us. We love because he first loved us. The source of Christian love is not the chambers of our own hearts. It's in the cross of Christ. And so where our sin separated us from God, and it built this barricade against God's love, God's love broke through that barricade. The love of God that is poured out on us, washing our sin away so that the love of God might flood into our lives, flood out of our lives. That we might be made complete in love. Because God is love and he has given us of his Spirit. And, and if you don't know that this morning, ask God to reveal his love to you. Ask him to reveal this truth to you, that his love may be made complete in you. In order that that day, that good and glorious day of God's judgment, may be a day that you can face with confidence a day of celebration rather than a day of fear. We love because he first loved us. And this love that is spoken of, it's not a love that originates within us. It's not a, a human love. It's a divine sort of love. Uh, which takes us to the verses we're going to focus in on now, verses 20 to chapter 5, verse 5. A divine sort of love. In these verses, we see something of what it means to love from this wellspring of God's love. And we return to this repeated theme in Wong John. That to love God, loving God means loving our Christian brothers and sisters. See, loving God means loving others because this is something that God has commanded us to do. And if we love God, we're going to keep his commands. And so, verse 21 of chapter 4, he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Okay, then we might ask, well, what's it mean for us to love our brother and sister? Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God 
and carrying out his commands. Seems a bit circular, doesn't it? But let's ask, what's it mean to love God and carry out his commands? I think this is where it's helpful for us to remind ourselves, when we read something like Wong John, this is something that people originally would have heard, would have been read to them in a single sitting. It's like a single sermon. It's been weeks since we started in Wong John. So it's always good when we come to questions like this, well, well, let's look back and see what has already been said. And what's it mean to love God and to love his commands? There's a focus on two primary sort of commands, so to speak, in this letter of Wong John. If you look back to chapter 3, verse 23. 22 it speaks of us keeping his commands, doing what pleases him, verse 23. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to, to do God's commands. You see, we cannot love one another aside from following God's commands. We cannot love one another aside from Christ. Because true love, a divine sort of love, is different to the world's sort of love. The world's sort of love is a love that originates within us. And it's shallow and it's self-serving. But true love, the love of God, it originates within him. And it's deep. And it's life-giving. And so if we are to truly love others, we have to love from the wellspring of God's love. And we cannot do that aside from Christ. Because a love that originates within us is shallow and it is self-serving. You know, in pastoral ministry, there is always the temptation to tell people what they want to hear. The temptation to always affirm people that even in their sin, Why? Because we want to be loved. We want to be liked. We want to be affirmed. No one wants to be called a religious bigot, do they? And yet that's not love. To affirm people, even in their sin, is not love. And we saw that a few weeks ago as Andrew took us through the beginning of chapter 4. And what the world often presents as Love is a shallow and it is a self-serving love. It doesn't come from God, it comes from the world. Again, just flip back, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 16. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the way of the world is about desiring and seeing and possessing. And relationships then just become a means to achieve that. As not necessarily material possessions, although in some cases it it might be. But this possessing of an emotional affirmation. I want to feel loved. I want people to accept me. I want people to affirm me. I want to be held in high esteem. I want to be a success. 
And if we seek then to love from ourselves, from our own resources, it's the love of the world and it just becomes self-serving and it is shallow. If we are constrained by the way of the world, we cannot truly love others. We just use it to love ourselves. And yet there's a better way. Have a look at verse 4. Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. That way of love, that way of living, those who are born of God, they overcome the world. And who is it, verse 5, that overcomes the world? Well, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Hang on, we've heard that already, haven't we? Several times, chapter 3, verse 23, God's commands to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you see? Do you see this is why? This is why we cannot love others aside from loving God and keeping his commands. Because it's only in Christ that we're freed from this way of loving, the way of loving of the world, this shallow self-love. If we are to love others truly, it is only through Christ. Christ has overcome the world, and it is only in him that we overcome the world. It is only in Christ that we are freed from this shallow, self-serving love of the world. Only in Christ are we given of God's spirit, God who is love. And so it's only in Christ that these streams of living water can flow out of our lives. God has lavished his love on us so that we live neither for ourselves nor from ourselves. How are we to go on loving? How are we to keep on loving one another? Well, it's only through Christ, through the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great love that you have poured out on us. Lord, that that your love, Lord, is given for a purpose, to be complete, to to make us like Christ, Lord, that that we would love not from the, the shallowness, from the broken cisterns of our own heart, but from the wellspring of yours. Lord, help us to see and to know, to experience more of your great love, Lord, for us, and to be changed and transformed by your love, to live And to love not from our own resources, but from you. Lord, may we see more of the immensity and the glory of Christ. Lord, and depend more on the work of your spirit changing and transforming us. Lord, that we indeed would be those who love like Christ, who continue to love like Christ, even to the very end. Amen.